Welcome back to the Doxology Podcast. I am Lucas Stock. And I'm Jens Nelson. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Today is, well, you know, we always do this, haha, joke's never going to get old, but when you're listening to this, or at least when it's releasing, it's a Friday, um, which means it's time for another Christians of History episode, and today, this week, it is Gen Z Boy's turn to bring us a Christian of History, so would you please do us the honor of sharing about St. Catherine of Siena with us? Of course I would. So... I'm going to butcher this because it's probably like Italian and I don't speak Italian, but her name uh, is Caterina di Jacopo di Benin Casa, or we'll just call her Catherine of Siena for short. Uh, But she was born March 25th, 1347 in Siena, which is in modern day Italy. And this is just, you know, very close to uh, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, um, just to give you some context. So uh, she was born to Lapa. Pia Genti, uh, who was uh, basically a local poet, and uh, Jacopo di Benincasa, a cloth dyer who ran his enterprise with the help of his sons. And let me tell you, there are many children here. Uh, She is the youngest of 25 children born to a lower middle class family, uh, although most of her siblings did not survive childhood. Um, But Again, again, think about the Black Death, uh, the bubonic plague, and then just other life expectancy issues during this time. Uh, but can you just think for a moment of like a woman giving birth to 25 children? That is just insane. Uh, but anyway, at a young age, it is said that uh, she consecrated herself. Uh, she gave, her, basically, she devoted her life to being a virgin for Christ, and she even experienced mystical visions. Uh, It's said by her confessor and biographer, Raymond of Capua, uh, that uh, basically she had her first vision of Christ when she was about five, maybe six. Uh, She and her brother, or she and a brother, were on their way home from visiting one of their older married sisters when she is said to have experienced a vision of Christ seated in glory uh, alongside the apostles Peter, Paul, and John. And her biographer continues saying that at age seven, is when she vowed to basically give her whole life to God. And I think it's worth noting at least that uh, her devotion, like her her devoting her life to Christ, was actually against the will of her parents. And there are a number of stories that are told that are just like her and her parents butting heads, like the point where like she wouldn't eat food because she felt like it was like she had to be that ascetic and that uh, devoted to Christ. And it it just caused a big stir within her family. Um, And she even saw herself almost like, she said that like in her head, she would picture her father as Joseph, her mother as Mary, and her siblings as like apostles, basically. And she said like, by by picturing them like that, she was able to serve them and to love them um, as Christ would love them. So that's a very, you know, interesting look into her mind. Uh, but later in life, she, uh, I guess, basically, to, to sort of book against the norms of society, she Uh, She chose to abstain from the normal course and get married and become a mother uh, on the one hand, and on on the other hand, to avoid uh, basically taking on uh, the role of a nun. And she chose instead to live an active and prayerful life outside of convent walls, 
following the model of the Dominicans. And it's here that she basically joined a group of other pious women who were primarily widows. Uh, but she basically became a tertiary, which, if I understand it correctly, is kind of like an associate or an assistant type role. But it's a, it's a member of a monastic order who takes simple vows and they remain outside of the convent or monastery of the Dominican yeah, order. It, it, it's basically like a lay person who attaches themselves to a monastic order without actually taking monastic vows. Okay. So it might be like you're not becoming a nun like she's doing, but she's also not living a normal lay person's life. So she's kind of living this right. in-between kind of life where she's committed to certain things but not all the things. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, and that this was about 1363, so again, cl- approaching her 20s. Uh, and she actually gained a pretty wide reputation pretty quickly for her holiness and for her severe asceticism. Um, In her early 20s, she actually experienced what she calls a uh, spiritual espousal to Christ and was moved to immediately begin serving the poor and the sick and all the while gaining disciples in the process. So like you said, not joining um, the monastery or the convent, but sort of working outside of those walls and, and serving Christ and uh, is getting quite the following. Um, basically, she she was so influential um, that her influence with Pope Gregory the Eleventh played a role in his decision to leave um, Avignon for Rome, um, and she was then sent by him to negotiate peace with Florence. And after Gregory's death um, and peace was concluded, she returned to Siena. And it's there that she dictated to secretaries her set of spiritual treatises, which are called the Dialogue of Divine Providence. And actually, all of the writings that she that we have from her um, are are actually dictated. That it's said that she didn't actually write any of these herself. Um, so it's actually interesting because most of what we know comes from other people writing about her, whether it's you know biographical or them writing what she's saying. But very little is like autobiographical or you know written by her own hand. But um, in, in late November of 1378, uh, with the outbreak of the Western Schism, the new pope, Urban the, uh, I'm so bad with Roman numerals, that sixth, uh, summoned her to Rome, and she basically stayed at Pope Urban's court and tried to convince nobles and cardinals of his legitimacy, uh, both meeting with certain individuals within the court, but also writing letters uh, basically to persuade people. And I... I will confess that I don't have uh, the history of this great schism memorized, uh, but I know that Pope Urban was sort of not seen as like the Pope. He was sort of like the anti-Pope or whatever. So when she's aligning with him and saying like, he should get your support, like it was a pretty significant thing to be doing. Uh, But basically for for many years, she had accustomed herself to uh, a rigorous abstinence, as I sort of mentioned earlier, Uh, It's said that she received the Holy Eucharist almost daily, uh, but her extreme fasting appeared unhealthy in the eyes of the clergy and her own sisterhood, so the people that she's spending time with. And her biographer, Raymond, actually ordered her to eat properly. He was like, you're not like you're not doing so well you need to eat well uh but but Catherine claimed that she was unable to eat describing her inability to eat as basically an illness like she said i i I can't eat and so from the beginning of 1380 Catherine could neither eat or swallow even water so like 
1380. She was born, what did I say, in, in 1347. So we're talking like not even 30 years old yet or close. I can't do quick math. That She's th- 33, I guess. Um, 33 years old um, and she can't eat, can't swallow. And on fe- so that was, that was the beginning of 1380. And now on February 26th, she lost the use of her legs. So her body is just sort of like wasting away. And on the 29th of April, 1380, Catherine died in Rome at the age of 33. Basically, eight days earlier, she had suffered a massive stroke, which paralyzed her from the waist down. Um, And her final words were, Father, into your hands, I commend my soul and my spirit. Um, So that's a a short, I guess, biographical sketch of the life of Catherine of Siena. Uh, It's it's always interesting doing these Christians of history. I mean, I, I... we'll read on Logos, I'll read on websites, I'll consult books if I have them. Uh, and it's just so fascinating to, to get a glimpse into the life of some of these people, the things that they did, uh, especially in light of, you know, the bubonic plague and the great schism and, and all the things that were happening in her lifetime. But uh, she was so influential that, that she was actually canonized in 1461. She was declared patron saint of Rome in 1866 and the patron saint of Italy, together with Francis of Assisi in 1939. Uh, She was the second woman, only days after Teresa of Avila, uh, to be declared a doctor of the church, Um, and that was in 1970. Uh, She was also proclaimed the patron saint of Europe, so all of Europe in 1999 by Pope John Paul II, Um, and Catherine of Siena is one of the, I guess, like the most outstanding figures really of medieval Catholicism, um, basically because of the strong influence that she had in the history of the papacy, um, but also her extensive authorship, or I guess, dictating authorship. Uh, But I mean, she was behind, again, the return of the Pope from Avignon to Rome, and then carried out many missions uh, entrusted by the Pope, which was really something quite rare for a woman in the Middle Ages to have such a high ranking position and to, um, to even speak uh, to, to the courts and to the nobles, but uh, she she remained a, a greatly respected figure for her spiritual writing and for her political boldness to basically, as she says, speak truth in power. Um, and this was, as I said, pretty exceptional for the time for a woman um, in that period um, to have such an influence, not only in politics, but even the history of the world. So um, I didn't know much about Catherine of Siena before before doing this, I'd heard her name. I, I read about her a little bit, but I, I was like, she sounds fascinating. I want to know a little bit more. So that is a, a brief sketch into her life. Awesome. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. Uh, as always, you can reach us on Twitter or Instagram at Doxology Podcast and by email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We always welcome your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future episodes. Uh, We'd love to hear from you no matter what you have to say. And until next time, we will see you.